Hey, Connect. It's so good to see you. Uh, I want to say happy Father's Day to all of you fathers in the room. It's a great day to celebrate that. And I know there are a lot of you who have families and you guys do such a great job of raising your kids in the Lord, taking care of them. There are a lot of you who are father figures in the room too and have discipled people, discipled your brothers and led them along and have served as spiritual fathers too. And so I just want to say thank you for that and being an example of what that looks like. Even today when you could be out in the mountains, you could be anywhere out when it's sunny, um, you chose to be here and bring your family in and represent your, to your friends and your community that being at church matters and you're leading in that way too. So I just want to say thank you to all the fathers and father figures in the room and the example that you're setting. If you haven't met me before, my name is Alex, and I'm the Connections resident here. I love to get people plugged into different things, whether that be maybe serving on a team or a summer hangout community group or just like get coffee, hear your story. That's one of my favorite things to do, and I love getting to know you. So if it's your first time here, I'd love to meet you afterward. Uh, this morning, we're going to be diving into Jonah chapter 3 because we're in a series called At Odds with God, and we're studying the story of Jonah and his journey um, and there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. Uh, we looked at Jonah 1 and what it looks like to run from God and how we're supposed to respond. We also looked at Jonah chapter 2 last week with Tyler and, and saw what it looks like when we hit rock bottom and when Jonah was in the belly of that fish. Today we're looking at Jonah 3 and there's some crazy stuff that's going to happen. Stuff that's unexpected that Jonah doesn't expect. We as the audience aren't going to expect. And it's all about uh, God's mercy is what we're going to see today. Um, for those of you who maybe grew up hearing the story of Jonah, we often think of Jonah, again, as this kind of kid's story that we get thrown in to be exciting because it's kind of smacking the boring or sad part of the Bible, maybe, where there's lots of prophets and um, exile and all kinds of stuff. So Jonah's like a fun story where we get this big fish and, you know, it's a fun story to tell as kids. But in some ways, we almost need to redeem it from that point and actually re analyze it and look at it for what it means for us today because Jonah has some good deep stuff that should really show us the heart of God. And there's also so much to the story of Jonah. It's rife with irony and satire. It's actually kind of supposed to be funny, but it's that kind of funny that once you're done laughing, you feel it in the pit of your stomach. You're like, oh, that's about me. I needed to be doing something about that. So it is a brilliant book and I'm so glad that we've been studying uh, through it. So if you have a Bible, you can grab one from the back or you can open it up on your phone or a free church app if you want to download that. Take some notes. There's some great stuff from Jonah 3 today, so it's worth having out. Um, before we dive in, uh, I want to pray with us. There's a lot of good stuff to cover. I just want to pray and welcome God into this space to help us learn and see what he's showing us in Jonah 3. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to learn, the freedom to learn here uh, under your word. And uh, would you open up our eyes and our hearts to see the ways that you are showing us your character and who you are? Um, would you reveal yourself um, and what you do and how we can become more like you and how we can show mercy to others? Um, and also give us a heart of repentance as well, Lord. Would you show us what that looks like, what that really means? Uh, it's a word that sometimes we misunderstand, Lord, but would you reveal um, just a, heart, a sharpening of that, Lord, this morning? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so a little context of where we were just this past week. Jonah was in the, in the belly of the uh, fish, and he prayed, and um, he's ready to kind of get back on track here. And so at the end of chapter 2, the fish vomits Jonah up. Um, he's got to get back on track. But what's so interesting, this right before we moved to 3, this should strike us because the fish is vomiting Jonah up. In Hebrew, that word is ka. So the fish is ka, like vomiting Jonah up. And Jonah's name is so closely associated, like in, in the language there, with 
um, him throwing up that it's almost to say that Jonah is worthy of vomit. Like this guy doesn't deserve a second chance. He has failed time and again, but God's still going to let him go and try it again to try to go to Nineveh. Even this man, Jonah, who's worthy of vomit, he doesn't deserve it. He's going to have another go. And I think that's pretty cool. And so that's how we're walking in Jonah 3. So Jonah 3, picking up in verse 1, starts this way. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it, the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. So God is starting over, giving Jonah another shot. He's like, here's the message again. Um, and compare this to verse, verse, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, when God gave Jonah those instructions, what was his reaction? I'm going to run the other way and just go as far as you can away. But instead here, Jonah chooses to obey. And so he takes those words and heads out. God's mercy on Jonah is quite incredible. Again, this man is not worthy of a second chance, but he gets one. So he goes out. It made me think, you know, when I look back on my own life, do I see God's mercy in that too? I do. I think God gives us lots of second chances. Uh, have you ever looked back on yours and seen that second chance? I know when I was in college, I was not um, a great road with my identity. I was trying to figure that out. I was in a relationship I shouldn't have been and gotten one that I wasn't ready for. I was trying to live life for some realm motives, trying to just figure out. And it was God's mercy that brought me back at a low point, but help me get back on the right track and give me a second chance. Remind me who I was, my identity, what he had called me to be. When are those moments in your life? Have you ever seen those? We're going to see more of those. God is a merciful God. He is one who loves getting second chances. Now, Jonah is getting the second chance. He's getting the word, and here he goes. He's going to Nineveh. But he also has something in the back of his mind. He is obeying the Lord and going, but there's some context here about what must be going through his head of, of course, he just has this traumatic experience in the fish, but he also still doesn't love this people of Nineveh. Um, verse 3 says, now Nineveh is a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Uh, some context for Nineveh, it was a capital city of the Assyrian Empire. So it is a huge city for ancient times. It was ginormous. Um, in fact, some archaeologists have found the city of Nineveh in northern Iraq and they found the city walls even, and it's about seven miles um, wide or around. And so it's pretty substantial. That um, is saying something. And so whether it actually takes three days to walk through or not, there's a lot of, of debate about that. But I think the point that the text is trying to make is that this place is big. And so we need to recognize that. But the other thing that Jonah is thinking about is not just the size of the city, but the people who live in it. The Assyrians. And the Assyrians, as Kyler even kind of alluded to last week with some uh, information, they're not great people. They're, um, they're pretty bad because they are brilliant with their strategies and their military prowess, but they're also brutal executioners. They love to torture. They love inventing new ways of torture. They take advantage of people. Essentially, anything terrible you can do a human, they do. They're not good people. And so Jonah has this in the back of his mind as he's going. Not only is he probably fearing for his safety, but also he despises these people. These are people he's heard for, about in the terrible things that they do and the ways that they conquer lands. And so this is not an easy task for him to do. And so that's where we pick up in verse 4. Uh, Jonah 3, 4 says this. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days in Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God, 
a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Man, we're only doing little verses at a time, but this is such a good story. This is crazy, given the context we just heard, and given Jonah's attitude thus far, and um, the story, and the people that he's expecting, what did they do? They, were, they hear him, they listen to him, and they put on sackcloth, they believe him. There's a lot to unpack here. First, this is interesting for several reasons. I don't know if you've maybe read other prophets in the Bible, but Jonah's doing something very interesting. Um, usually prophets in the other stories, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, they do several things. Um, number one, usually a prophet of God identifies that they're speaking um, from the Lord on behalf of Yahweh. That's who is giving them their message. And usually they tell them that. But does Jonah do that? Mm, he doesn't. Number two, prophets of God usually tell people what about the wrong they have done and like why it's wrong, and then they warn them about judgment coming. Does Jonah do that? Kind of. He tells them of judgment coming, but he doesn't really tell them what's wrong or why they're in trouble. And number three, a prophet of God usually shares a way to repent and get right with God. Does Jonah do that? No. He says, essentially, you got 40 days in your toast. That's it. And so there's a lot going on in this very short sentence that he tells them. Essentially, in Hebrew, he gives them five words. It's like a little sermonette. And they listen to that. Now, there's a lot of debate about what this little message that Jonah gives them, how, to, how do we deal with it? Um, there are three options. And I think number one is that could have been the very message that God gave. That's very possible. God could have said that. Um, however, given the other things that prophets usually do, he's missing some things. So maybe not. I don't know. That's one option. Number two is that there might have been more to that message in the text is kind of just keeping it short for the sake of the story. But number three, and maybe the one that I'm kind of leaning towards, given who we see Jonah to be, is especially given his attitude thus far in the book and what, how he ran away, is that this probably is what he said, and he's probably doing the very bare minimum. Because remember, these are people he doesn't like. He probably, I don't know, he's not super sold on this. He's maybe a little scared. He's also kind of wants to see God, you know, duke him out a little bit, like show him who's boss. And so I think Jonah is kind of saying this half-heartedly. He's doing the bare minimum to meet the obedience requirement, but not really give them the full story. And so, honestly, um, I think that's interesting. And then God is still able to use that. That Jonah's attitude, his actions, even thus far, he's given him a second chance. He's using his words that may not be fully there, but he still uses that. And I think that's crazy. It just shows how good God is and that he can work through anyone. This also brings up the point about Jonah's message when he is essentially saying you got 40 days in your toast. What do we do with God's judgment? Because I think whether that sermon that he gives is the full message or not, it still includes judgment. And we do have to acknowledge that. So what do we do when we recognize that God does have judgment? I mean, yes, he's full of grace and mercy, but he's equally able to deliver judgment. And I think both of them, his grace and mercy and that judgment is out of love. Uh, looking at this story, I listened to a sermon from Tim Mackey, and it was really good, and explained a little bit more about what God's posture of judgment is specifically here. And he tells the story to kind of help us understand why God had to administer judgment in this situation. Tim Mackey tells the story. He says, you have two kids. You got a fifth grader 
and a second grader, and they're both boys, and you take them to the playground. They're at the playground, um, they're fighting over the swing, and, and suddenly the fifth grader tackles the second grader, beating him up, punching him, they're mad, but clearly the fifth grader has an advantage. He's much bigger, he's stronger, the second grader has no chance. So what are you to do as a parent? Are you just gonna watch? Well, of course not. You're gonna go over there and you're going to physically remove your fifth grader from your second grader and take him away. And the reason you do that, in that moment, that's the most loving thing you can do because one, your love is being extended to the second grader who can't defend himself as being hurt and has no way. And so your love is benefiting him and showing him his security and his safety that you care about that. But then your love is also being extended to that fifth grader who is, needs to be told that violence is not okay and that you're not gonna allow that. It needs to be physically removed from the situation to demonstrate that, that you won't tolerate it. And so that's what God is doing here, is that when he's um, threatening judgment here, he's standing up for the people that the Assyrians have treated so terribly, have been horrible, horrible people. And he's acknowledging that those who have faced those injustices deserve to be stood up for. But he's also making a statement that he's not okay with the violence that they're showing. And so that is a statement out of love. He doesn't want this to continue, and he's trying to make a show of it to let him know, let uh, the people know who he is as God and what he um, sees as okay, and that what they see as okay is not good. So something else happens, though, because God doesn't administer the judgment like we just read uh, or we're talking about. The text is actually going to show us something different and that they repented, and we're going to unpack that. Uh, it says the Ninevites believed in God. So what are we going to do with that? This is unexpected. You know, we've seen God administer judgment in other places in the Old Testament, but he doesn't here. And why is that? Usually if we're, we're really love a good story, right? If we're watching a superhero movie, Marvel, DC, whatever it might be, whenever they have that great showdown, it's always in New York, and they all have their outfits and they're getting ready, the supervillain or alien or whoever it is comes in, and if they laid down all their weapons and said, I'm so sorry, I changed my mind, I did everything wrong, we would want our money back if that's how the movie ended, because that's boring, that's not exciting. Where are the special effects, the explosions? That's not cool. We want a good story, right? And so the audience in Jonah is supposed to be kind of left at that same point of like, what is going on? This is not how I expected the story to go. The Ninevites believe God. Let's keep going in verse 6 to find out what's going on. Verse 6 says this, When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Jonah has only been in Nineveh for like one day, and his message has already reached the king. It's spreading like wildfire. That's all people are talking about. It finally reaches the king. And what does the king do? The king got off of his throne. He got, he got his sackcloth on. It's like prickly goat hair, kind of a, a piece. He sits down in the dust. It's a, that's a symbol of deep humiliation. Kings don't do that. That's not normal. Like the greatest 
uh, empire in the world, their ruler gets off his throne, sits in the dust. That's not what they do. That's not normal. His decree is a sign of desperation in pleading with God. He sends out this royal announcement declaring that everyone must stop eating. They've got to put on the sackcloth. They've got to cry out to God. Even the animals used to put on the sackcloth. He's essentially, he's trying to cover all his bases. They're pulling out every stop possible to move the heart of God. They don't know who Jonah's God is. Jonah hasn't told him. But they know that his threat is real and that they need to do something about it. Now, the irony of the story should stand out. If you've been with us or have read the story of Jonah, remember what he did in one? He ran away. And then the storm came. He got thrown into the ocean. And he got swallowed by a fish in two. He spent three nights in the belly of the fish. That's what it took for Jonah to repent. But what did it take for the Ninevites to repent? Jonah's measly five-word sermon. That's what got them to repent. Now, there's no doubt that, jo- that the Lord is working through Jonah's sermon. I mean, God knew what he was doing. But the thing is, Jonah's attitude, minimum care, it didn't matter. God still worked his way through. He was convicted their heart. The king removed himself from his throne, recognizing that he was no longer in control of the situation. That God was. When the word of the Lord is spoken, are you paying attention? Even if it's something simple. I mean, does your journey to repentance often look more like Jonah's or Nineveh's? And see, we need to talk about that word repentance. What does repentance mean? It's a big word that we get kind of thrown around. Repentance looks like a humble posture, recognizing what you've done wrong, ceasing what you did, and asking God for forgiveness. That's what repentance looks like. And as the people repent and call out to God, the Lord responds to them. This is what he says in verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring to them the destruction he had threatened. This grabs my heart every time I read it. Um, The Lord relented and didn't bring his judgment. The Hebrew word here for relent is nacham, and it means to feel like suffer grief to be filled with a burden of compassion, to feel pity, to be moved. The Lord relented, and he was moved by their change of heart, their repentance, their ceasing of evil, and he heard their cry for mercy. A commentary I read put it this way, the Lord's heart is always sensitive to those who cry out for mercy. When Nineveh cried out for mercy, God heard, and when you cry out for mercy, God hears. Now, some people might point to this part of the story and say, look, God changes his mind. He, how can we see his constant character? Like, clearly he changed his mind. He was going to do one thing, and then he did another. Like, who is this? But I think the problem with that argument is it really ignores the fact that this actually reinforces God's character all the more. And that we have seen time and again that God is merciful. That he is always looking for an opportunity to be merciful. Always. God's mercy is for anyone who asks for it. So that neighbor that you can't stand, if she asks for mercy, God will give it. That um, spouse of yours that maybe really bugged you last night, that maybe said something that really hurt you, your spouse is deserving of mercy if, if, God, uh, if they ask God for it. Or even that people who disgust you or maybe they do evil, they can receive God's mercy if they ask for it. And that person you look at in the mirror, the one, you, who do things time and again, 
you can receive mercy of God uh, when you ask God for it. So what does it take to receive that mercy? Well, it requires a repentant heart. Repentance is kind of the, the name of the game here. The repentance is, is what God is looking for because he's looking for a relationship. He's not just looking for a show. He's not just looking for you to meet rules or, or things. No, he wants a relationship and repentance is all part of that. Now, for those of you who might have paid attention in history class, rural history, you might know that the Assyrian Empire um, continues to do some real awful things later in um, the story. This kind of time of Jonah is kind of smack dab in an empire. And so they're going to go on to do some not so great things. So what does that tell us? Is this story genuine? Is this real? Well, I think so because Jesus is going to talk about it and we're going to read that in a second. And so I believe Jesus. So if Jesus says that it happened, then I believe it happened. But we also have to recognize something about us as humans that we often forget. We're very forgetful, aren't we? You see, here's what I think happened. The text doesn't say this, but I think given what we know about ourselves and human nature, this probably is something like this. That the king who sat on the ground, he got up. He didn't stay on the ground forever, and not that you're supposed to, but he did get up and he bathed himself of the dust in the ashes he was sitting in. He took off his sackcloth and he went and got his royal robes and put them back on. And eventually he went and sat back on his throne because he's a king, that's his job. But as he sat back down on that throne and kept bleeding, he slowly forgot, slowly forgot that God was the one who's in charge, not him. And he slowly starts to just go back to his old ways because he's on the throne again. You see, the problem isn't the getting up. It was the fact that the king had to sit back down on the throne. And you see, when we often go back to sit on our throne, we forget. And we decide we're the ones who should call the shots. That we're the ones who lead the best. We know how to govern our kingdom, our empire. So what do we do? Because this seems to be a cycle in human nature. I mean, I've seen it myself that time and again, I repent and then I have to, I get back up onto my throne and I make stupid decisions again. And then it's this vicious cycle that it feels like we're stuck in. So what are we supposed to do? Well, Jesus actually has some things to say about that. And I think we should have some hope. If Jonah's little message could awaken repentance within the great Assyrian empire, within the city of Nineveh, how much more should Jesus Christ convict us of our sin, but also give us hope because he extends mercy when we repent. Jesus, in fact, calls us out in a message in Luke 11. This is what he says in Luke 11, 29 through 32. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation it asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise to the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something, than greater, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Friends, we have Jesus, the Son of God, who went to the cross for us. He died for our sins and rose from the dead. He left behind an empty tomb. He is far greater than Jonah ever could be or ever hoped to be. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. 
He came to save it. He came to save it. Unlike Jonah, he loves the people that he came to save. And because of him, you have new life because he extended mercy to you. But to come to Jesus, it starts with that posture of repentance, recognizing that you need the mercy. Otherwise, we're caught in this vicious cycle. We're caught in sin. It is mercy extended from Jesus that gets us out of that. So here's the big idea. If you turn toward God, you will find mercy. If God is merciful, what does that mean, though, for us? What does that mean for us and what we're supposed to do with Jonah 3? How are we supposed to live this out with our people and our communities, our families? Well, number one, I think we need to practice confession and repentance in community. You know, this is something that we hear a lot about, like, confession or confessionals with, like, liturgical traditions. And there's a lot of pros and cons to how that's done. But uh, I think the bigger idea here is we need to see that repentance is something that's talked about extensively in Scripture. And so that means it's important. So I think we need to have maybe a, a different mindset and attitude about what it looks like to do repentance. And that might look like doing that in community. So practice confession and repentance within your families. Um, husband and wives, when something is wrong, practice confession and repentance with your spouse. Teach your kids that. Show them what it looks like to confess and repent. Show them that posture. Community groups, maybe friends, maybe you need to do that. Maybe there needs to be a safe space to be able to confess and repent and walk with one another to extend mercy because we as Christians represent Jesus to people. And so in a way we get to embody Christ in showing mercy to one another when someone comes to repent. And so let's receive that and let's create a space for that. Let's do it in community. We also, I think, number two, you need to speak up when you see injustice and wrongdoing. And I take this a little bit um, from Jonah 3 because of what God goes to, to uh, he tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and tell them, preach against their wickedness that they're doing. And so I think we also should learn from that, that God calls us to go speak against things that are not good, that are being done against people. And so when you see dads, maybe someone in your friend group or community group, you see another dad not treating their family well, their spouse well, speak against that and help them walk in repentance. Moms, when you see someone maybe gossiping or treating someone poorly in a friend group, go let them know and walk with them in repentance. When you're out in the community and you see injustice of any kind, speak against that and walk with people with change and repentance. I think number three, too, is to be merciful because our God is merciful. And let me tell you, this one sometimes seems like the hardest one. It's the one I don't really like to do because it's challenging. But because God is extremely merciful and we want to grow to be like our Father, we've got to learn to do that too. So extend mercy to those who look different than you, different personalities, skin color, socioeconomic background, whatever it might be. If it's hard to show mercy to someone who looks different than you, maybe you need to grow in that. Maybe you need to grow in showing mercy against those sins that are really hard to forgive. The ones that kind of poke at your wounds, the ones that were really hard for you to come back from. Those are the ones too, the ones that are not easy. We can't just be merciful to the easy sins because we see that God is merciful to even the ones that were hardest for maybe us to accept mercy too. So let your demonstration of mercy be a testimony to those uh, who are far from God to see who Jesus is. Wouldn't that be so cool this summer as we're trying to love the ones far from God in summer hangouts if we let our actions of mercy and walking with people in repentance be a testimony that Jesus is real and he's changed us.
So be merciful because our God is merciful. No matter where we are in life, we've all been in positions where we've needed God's mercy. And I want to close out in this. Jesus tells a story in Luke 15, 1 through 7. I think it's really good. The last line, oh, so good. Because it shows God's real heart. And when we repent, this is how he receives us. Luke 15, 1 through 7 says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 to open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. God rejoices when you repent. You know what he does? When you're down on your knees, he picks you up, he tosses you over his shoulder, and he brings you home. That's what a good shepherd does. So we need to, church, rejoice when people repent and walk with them. While repentance starts in a posture that's humble and submission, God picks you up and takes you home. So if you turn toward God, you will find mercy. Let me pray with me. God, would you um, just speak to us right now and help us to see how merciful and how good you are? Uh, would you convict us, Lord, if there's sin going on in our lives right now, that you would awaken us to that? Convict our hearts to ask for forgiveness, to look to your mercy. Um, help us reach out to community for help with that. God, thank you for what your word says in Jonah. May we look to you that you are always willing to extend mercy to us when we turn to you. God, help us to be bold, to speak out, and to teach this, and to love others and show them mercy. And let our mercy, the mercy that we receive be a testimony to who you are. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.